Actions or attitude? That's the subject of today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. What directs and governs your life? Join us as we take a look at Matthew chapter 5 together next. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Greetings and welcome to our program. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Message entitled, Action or Attitude. Now, there are those who would want to do actions to try and make themselves right with God, but really at the end of the day, as Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 5, it's all about the attitude of the heart. We would invite you to join us today as we do a heart examination and find out why we do what we do. What is the impetus? Are we doing good to be good, or are we good because God has called us good? And as a result, we desire to please Him. That's the subject of today's broadcast. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with this edition of Graceful Truth. And so Jesus isn't contrasting here, as many believe, the Old Testament with the New Testament. He's not contrasting His Word with God's Word. I mean, that would be a contradiction. But He's contrasting the Word of the rabbis and their, their, their traditional teachings with that which would be given to the people by God Himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives two examples of this. One modern day, one back in, in Jesus' time. I was born and raised a, a Roman Catholic. I mean, that's the church in which I was raised. And... Uh, up until probably I was a teenager, I remember going to Mass and hearing the priest go up there and say something, but I had the slightest idea what this guy was trying to get across because it was in what language? Latin, you ex-Catholics. Okay, it was in Latin. Not many of us spoke Latin. So you had a guy go up there in religious garb and, and say a bunch of stuff that you couldn't understand. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, prior to the Reformation... You have to understand the scriptures were not even translated into the people's language. So prior to the Reformation, they had no choice but to trust whoever went up there and taught whatever they said God's word said. And so when you went to the Mass and it was in, in Latin or whatever, whatever language, there was no Bible that they could reach out in the pew in front of them or the chair in front of them and say, hey, this guy's saying that this verse says that. I've got to check this out for myself. They couldn't do that. There was no way to validate the teaching that was coming out of the churches. And consequently, nobody understood Latin. Nobody read Latin except for the priests. So they had the sole authority. And the people, just out of respect, would simply believe whatever they said. They had no basis whatsoever to evaluate what was being said. So they accepted it. In century after century after century, this, this went on and on. And so the Roman Catholic Church basically began to develop a system which was never, ever investigated by the people. There was no, there was no comparison of truth. Mainly because they didn't have the Bible in their own language. The people had unquestionably accepted the priestly interpretations and basically conformed to the system of Rome what the Reformation did and why the Reformation is so important to us in church history is that it gave the Bible to the people. It put the Word of God in the people's hands. I mean, aren't you glad that happened? Can you imagine sitting out there 
Me up here speaking in a language that you don't understand. You have no text to compare what I'm saying with anything. I'm just up here kind of saying whatever I want. Well, when these people began to read the Scriptures, because it was translated in their language and it was put in their hand, many of them began to say, Hey, wait a minute. This church is teaching this, but the Gospel says this. And all of a sudden, God began to turn lights on and hearts began to be changed through the Word of God. It was the truth of the Gospel that helped to shatter these dark ages. And really, Protestant Christianity, as we know it today, was born out of that whole thing. And it was all because the Bible was put into the language of the people. And they were able to evaluate the validity of of the system of religion which they were involved in. That's a modern-day example. Now, yeah, they've changed, and now Catholics have Bible, and I understand all that. But originally, that's how it was. And I remember myself going to a priest and asking him, why do we pray to Mary? Why do, we, why do I have to come to you for confession? Why, why do we have these other books in the Bible? Why, you know, why, 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 why? And the priest never really gave me an answer. He said, well, it's the traditions of the church. <laughs> in Jesus' day, the Jews, you have to realize that when Israel went into captivity for 70 years, historians basically tell us that they lost all of their Hebrew skills And they came back from that captivity speaking which language? Aramaic. Well, the original texts were not given in Aramaic. So you can see where this whole problem almost duplicated itself there. The Jewish people spoke Aramaic. They understood Aramaic. They were unfamiliar almost completely with Hebrew. And so you have... The rabbis standing up there, reading in Hebrew, doing the whole thing in Hebrew. Well, these people don't understand Hebrew. Well, that's okay. We'll interpret it for you. And basically what the rabbis did is they built a system based entirely on the ignorance of the people regarding the Hebrew text. And as a result of that situation, the Lord is best understand, understood here as having said, you have heard that it was said by them of old. Who's them of old? These rabbis that kind of came up with their own brand of Judaism. And he'd be describing the religion of the Jews at the time as a product of this oral tradition and what they passed down over the years rather than from the written Word of God. Um, That's why it's so important that we have a foundation upon which to stand. I'm so thankful that I'm in a church that allows me to teach expositorily through God's Word. You know, some churches, you cannot do this. I mean, you may say, well, what, what can... No, you don't. It's all up to the, you know, the touchy-feely whims of whoever's leading what. And, you know, hey, well, you know, we need to learn more about family. So let's, let's pick some verses to deal with family or marriage or finances or whatever. And week to week, you're given a smorgasbord of topics in the teaching and they're, they're pulling verses out of everywhere to make their point. You know, I thank God that God's Word speaks for itself. We just have to come and understand the text and and understand the context of what we're understanding and then apply it to our lives. And it works. See, their religious system had kind of departed from all that. And they had all these traditions and embellishments and interpretations of all this oral law that they had. And just like the Catholic Church, basically they obliterated the truth by keeping the people ignorant of the Scriptures. And so when the Lord came along, he said, basically, I'm here to loose the law of God from the shackles of this rabbinical craziness that's going on 
I'm here to tell you the truth. And so when he says, you have heard it said by them of old, but I say to you, he's not replacing the Word of God. He's simply defining what the Word of God is. And some of them had a hard time with that. I mean, when he said, I will tell you what God's law really is, can you imagine the shockwave that that sent out? Here are these externally righteous people that think that they have the corner on the truth. And Jesus comes along, pretty simple man. Yeah, he's done some miracles and stuff, but for the most part, when he spoke, it says that he taught them as one having authority. Why is that? Well, first of all, it was because he was God. And secondly, because his teachings were based on the Word of God. What were their teachings based on? Whatever they believed. Even in Matthew 7, he said the people were astonished at his doctrine. It says there, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So there was this respect that Jesus demanded from the people. And he really desired them to have a reverence for the law. And he was really putting himself on an equal to the law of God. And that's what really blew them away. The rabbis had a a tremendous reverence for the law. They said, those who deny the law, deny that the law is from heaven, have no part in the world to come. That's what they believed about God's law. They believed that this was the only law and that the eternal destiny was dependent upon it. But what they did is they took God's law and they watered it down with all their own thinkings and sayings and everything else so that they could look on the outside righteous before people. The prophets always said, thus saith the Lord. And the rabbis would always say, there is a teaching that says, and then Jesus comes along and says, you know what? I say to you. (laughs) That blew them away. William Barclay said this, clearly one of two things must have been true. Either Jesus was mad or he was unique. Either he was a a, a megalomaniac or or else he was the son of God. No ordinary person would dare claim what he claimed when he was teaching. He clearly claimed the authority of God. He stripped away all these traditional layers and he he basically uh, brought back to the rightful standard God's law where it needed to be. Well, Jesus kind of lays out some principles for us here regarding the law. First of all, it's priority. You know, the spirit of the law, it's the spirit of the law that is the priority, not the letter of the law. It's not, when you think of the law of God, don't think of it as some mechanical thing that you just have to kind of make yourself do. Or simply functional. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, knowing that it is the letter of the law which kills and the spirit which gives life. See, we must realize that God is not just looking for us to keep a set of rules, do's and don'ts as Christians. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for changed hearts. He's looking for hearts that have been molded and fashioned and and reborn into God's image. So then for the first time, you can actually do the right thing. The religion was basically very hypocritical in that day. Even in Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are they who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, we have to realize, brothers and sisters, that men and God judge differently. You know, you can come to Grace Bible Church and you can sit here every week and you can play the game and talk the talk and do the works of the energy you know, ministry in the flesh. And you can justify yourself in your own eyes and even in the eyes of others. 
And at the same time, you're doing all that stuff, you're abomination to God because your heart is full of corruption. That's what Jesus is saying, plain and simple. It's not just doing things. What's in the heart? It's also positive, the law. The law is not just negative, it's also positive. The Pharisees were were concerned with what they didn't do. God is concerned with what they did do on the inside. And He's concerned with what we do on the inside. And that's why uh, previously when we started chapter 5, you know, you go back and you think on those things. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? That's something that comes from the inside. Do you seek to be merciful? Are you pure in heart? Do you mourn over your sin? Are you poor in spirit? Are you a peacemaker? Those are attitudes that God is concerned with. He doesn't list here, okay, you have to go to church once a week, twice if you're really spiritual. Secondly, you have to sing in the choir. Thirdly, you have to give 10%. He doesn't go that route. Why? Because that's not important to God. What's important is your heart. Thirdly, what's the purpose? The law is not just given to be the law. It has a purpose. What's the goal of the law? See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought, the goal of the law is to glorify me. So God's law, He gives it to us, and then I take it, and I make it into something that I can do, and then I go out into the highways and byways, and I do God's law, and everybody looks at me in my religious garb and says, oh, what a righteous person that is. And it glorifies me. That's what they thought the purpose of God's law was. But the true end of the law of God is to what? Is to glorify who? To glorify God. It's not a question of asking yourself every morning have, or before you go to bed, have I kept all the laws today? <laughs> have I, have I d- done the Ten Commandments today? I heard one, I don't know if it was a politician or whatever, said, well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments every day. <laughs> Good luck, pal. You know, I thought, man, wh- who do you think you are? Shouldn't we better ask, have I glorified God in my spirit today? Have I been free from phoniness? Have I had a pure heart? that had no thought of evil or anger or hatred or bitterness or lust or unrighteousness, to the glory of God, not to my own glory, because only God can see my heart. In his Institutes, John Calvin wrote this, which I thought was pretty neat. He said, first, let us agree that through the law, man's life is molded not only to outward honesty, but to inward and spiritual righteousness. Although no one can deny this, very few duly note it, this happens because... They do not look to the lawgiver, by whose character the nature of the law is to be appraised. If some king, by an edict, forbids fornication, murder, or theft, I admit that a man who does not commit such acts will not be bound by the penalty. That is because the mortal lawgiver's jurisdiction extends only, and this is important, to the outward political order. But God, whose eye nothing escapes and who is concerned not so much with outward appearance as with purity of heart, forbids not only fornication, murder, theft, but also lust, anger, hatred, coveting, deceit. For since he is a spiritual lawgiver, he speaks no less to the soul than to the body. See, what Calvin means is if you think God's law are only external, then you don't know the character of God. You don't know the character of God. Look at his discernment. God alone can judge men. He's the only one that knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows you. He knows me. He knows if you're a Christian. He knows if you're playing religious games. He knows all that. He knows if you're spiritual. He knows if you're carnal. 
He knows whether it's just a matter of acts or really deep down felt attitudes because your heart's been changed by Christ. He knows all that. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, it says, For the word of God is living, powerful, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But though God knows everything, we can find comfort in the fact that we have a faithful sympathetic. Hebrews goes on, high priest. He says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, isn't that great that God knows our hearts? He knows that we're rotten as sin can be rotten, but he stands there with his arms open wide, ready to give us grace and mercy. See, God alone can judge the heart. We may be able to stand before the judgment of men, But let me tell you, there's going to come a day when you will stand before the judgment of God. And He will not be fooled. You better examine your heart this morning. Have you yielded it to Christ? You say, well, who has to make this kind of, you know, who does He demand this of? Every person is commanded to live up to His divine standard. It doesn't matter who you are. Every one of us. In Matthew 5, verses 20, and, and also in verse 48, he says, he tells us, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on, he says, be you therefore perfect, just in case you maybe misunderstood in verse 48, chapter 5, Matthew, he says, be you therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Every person in the world is required to live up to that standard. And you may sit there this morning and you say, What are you, nuts? Well, you got to be kidding. I can't do it. There's no way. I can't be perfect. Well, you know what? God calls you. He obligates you to that standard. To have that purity on the inside and that righteousness on the outside as well. And you may sit sitting here this morning and you're saying, You know what? I can't. I can't do it. And I'm here to tell you, you're right. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. See, and that's... So many of us have started off our lives in some religion or another, and finally God brought us to the point where we realized, you know what, pal? You can't do it. It's not up to you. It's up to me. And we yielded our heart at that point in time, and we asked God, God... Save me a sinner. I need your grace. I can't do this on my own. I've tried tried and tried religions, tried to do all this stuff, being an altar boy, all this stuff. It doesn't take away my sin. My sin's still there. What do I do? Romans chapter 3, in the words of Paul, it says, It's written, There's none righteous, no, not one. But then he says this, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, And here's how you get the righteousness of God, which God demands of every man, every child, every woman. It doesn't matter. You're not going to heaven without his righteousness. How do you get it? He says the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. See, you can't obtain your own righteous standard before a holy God. You have to rely on the standard of Christ. You know, and you say, well, I, you know, 
you Christians, you know, you may need a crutch. Hey, you know what, folks? We all need a crutch. Because we're all in this boat together. We're all sinners that need the grace of God. It doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out that we, we all fall short of God's glory, that we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily, if we're honest with ourselves and with others. God set that holy standard and He put it in place. See, and when you acknowledge that you can't live up to it, that's when He says, you know what? <laughs> I got some news for you. My son is not only the law giver. He's the one that gives the law. But he's also the redeemer. He's the one that makes it possible for you to live on that level of righteousness that I've scribed out for you to live. And by yourself, you'll never attain it. Ever. It's a fantastic thing. I'd like to, you know, compare it to if we went down to Pier 39 in San Francisco and we all lined up and worked out for months and we said, okay, who's, who's first, you know, get a running start and jump to Alcatraz? Some of you may be a little more athletic than others. Some of you may, you know, just make it an inch off and sink like a rock. I don't know, but sooner or later, we're all going in the water. Nobody's going to jump to Alcatraz. Why? Because it's impossible. It's physically impossible for a human being to defy gravity that long on his own power. Impossible. Same way, when we look at our sin, and we look at all the things we try to do to get rid of it, Try to be a good person, try to be moral, try to help, try to do this. Try... You know what? God is saying, you know what? It's impossible. You're never going to reach the level of righteousness that I have scribed out for you to live by. It's only through Christ. It's so high, none of us can obtain it. But Christ met that standard. And He takes His righteousness and He puts it on us. What an amazing thing. You may look at yourself this morning and say, hey, you know what? The outside isn't that bad. You know, lost a couple pounds after the first, working out and everything. But you know what? The inside's rotten. If you're honest with yourself, you know your heart. And if God did what was right this morning, He would consume all of us in a blast of His fiery fury. It's only because of His mercy and His grace. And He makes His lawgiver, not just a lawgiver, but a redeemer too, that we have the opportunity to come to Christ who perfectly kept the law of God, who imputes, he gives us his righteousness so that when God looks at those who are believers, those who put their faith in Christ Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. And you know what? I don't know about you, but that feels real good. In times when you fall short and you sin and you realize, hey, you know what? Thank God it's not up to me. Thank God it's not up to me to be saved. Thank God it's not up to me to stay saved. That it's a work of God in our heart. As long as you live your life justifying yourself based on your external behavior, you'll never, ever come to that desperation that God wants you to, that reaches out and accepts the gift of His righteousness because you know what? You think you got your righteousness covered and it's just plain wrong. There was a great preacher many years ago Henry Ward Beecher, and he had a clock in his church on the back wall, and it was always breaking. It never kept good time. And period of time, he tried to you know fiddle with it, and month after month, it just kept on losing time or it'd go too fast, and it was just always wrong. And sooner or later, you know, it just became a standard of topic of the conversation in the church. And finally, he put a sign over the clock, 
And he said, don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. And you know what? That's how it is in life. We all sin. And it's because of our heart. Don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. See, until we deal with our deeper trouble in the spiritual realm, our sin before a holy God, there'll be no way to set the hands right permanently before God. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth.